All right, everybody, welcome back to the best hour of their day. Fern here, Bethany Werner. All right, we are in Whistler, Canada. We just basically wrapped up the 10-year affiliate gathering. So she was here um, for that as well. What did you think of the weekend? It was amazing. Yeah. I really dug the fact that it was, like, super loose schedule. Yeah. So it, it, was, it was the opposite of everything else that is CrossFit, which is, like, tight timelines, got things to do, do a lot of stuff. This was a lot of eating <laughs> <laughs> and drinking and a lot of drinking and a lot of downtime and um and then a little bit of you know kind of interaction with coach and stuff like that and uh what'd you think about his his talk yesterday i'm so hyped up i'm so motivated again it was uh it was exactly what i needed at this point in one way uh and i asked oh. that because <laughs> i think a lot of people there's some obvious, obvious mm -hmm. skepticism rolling around the community. And so you said you feel awesome, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people are now intrigued as to why. Yeah. Um, I'm coming up on 10 years in CrossFit. So I've seen it take different iterations over the years. And I definitely got caught up in the competition for a while. And it felt like a kick in the stomach a year ago when they changed that very abruptly. Um, and as a master's athlete, they changed what we were doing as well. Um, what age group are you in the 40 to... Uh, 40 to 44. 45. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm 43. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, but over the last year to see how things actually worked out in practice, it was, it was great. I loved watching the games. Um, Did you watch the whole weekend? Or most of it, which I you streamed could. nearly every bit of it. Yeah, that's cool. And most people don't know that, and we talked about it a little bit. But the the, the game or the broadcast of the games was broadcast more widely by significant margin than it has ever been broadcast. Mm -hmm. So it was like it was readily available to virtually anybody that wanted to watch yeah. it. Uh, it was like a hundred, some crazy amount amount of entities took the stream and broadcast it. It was crazy. Yeah. So. Oh, I chose no, to watch the Rogue great. feed, and it, it was the feel, best one. Yeah, yeah, the quality was fantastic. It felt like the old games broadcast. Yeah, that's cool. Maybe even better. Um, okay, and then so back to the mm -hmm. so for those of you who don't know, so the this gathering in Whistler, Canada, was for affiliates that have been around for ten plus years. Um, not everybody was right on ten years. I think there was like thirty that were going to hit ten years before the end of. 2019 yes. i think the i think the numbers i think i saw it on morning chalk up was like 800 affiliates that meet that mark mm -hmm. of which i think 200 plus were here so i think that's pretty badass to get a quarter yeah. of the affiliates that were your starters that are still around there i think that's awesome I thought it was like CrossFit of old. It was like, it felt very 2008, 2007, a lot of like old faces and just, it's, it's really cool to see people around. But um, I thought his talk was great. Yeah. So he spoke for, for the, obviously you guys weren't here, but he's combined him talking in Q&A was three hours. So tell me a little bit about what you thought about it. It reminded me why we're doing this. It, it, we're there for the members. We're making people's lives better. We're not here to do the 300-pound snatch and to win the CrossFit Games. Um, that's why my gym is open. That's why I wake up in the morning super energized. And now I'm just extra energized going back, taking that with me. That's cool. So if for anybody who wants, like, spoiler alert here. So he, he did open his talk with, like, and I think he kind of 
just popped those those skepticism balloons. He was, he was like, there is no crisis. The company's not going public or anything like mm-hmm. that. Everything's fine. Um, it's just change. And we all know how people feel about change, particularly if you own an affiliate, you know how people feel about change, um, which kind of leads to some of the things we're going to talk about is you have two affiliates. Yes. That are not co-located. <laughs> not even close. Yeah. So tell, me, tell, tell us about that. So you have one in Hawaii and then your other one is? Yeah. CrossFit Sandy in Sandy, Utah is my first affiliate. Uh, We just reached our 10-year a couple of weeks ago, so I'm here at this event. And then an opportunity came up at the end of 2018 for me to buy CrossFit Kapa'a on the island of Kauai, and I took that over on January 1st. How does that happen? How do you get presented with a purchase of a business not in the continental United States? Honestly, it was the Affiliate Owners Group on Facebook where all good things happen. Uh, it was Halloween morning and the post popped up and I took a screenshot of it and sent it to my husband who was on a business trip and said, fun daydreaming, right? And uh, he responded, you can do this and uh, and we're doing it. That's cool. So, And you've been there and that acquisition was final. And how long have you been there? I flew out on December 30th, taught my first class on the morning of the 31st. Okay. And so you're coming up on a year-ish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How's it been so far? So much better than I could have imagined. That's great. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't as hard as I thought. The community was more welcoming, and the the benefits, the drop-ins, and the landscape, and just everything about that place is fantastic. So, obviously, you don't have to give numbers here, mm-hmm. but I do think the the discussion of a purchase or an acquisition comes up fairly regularly in the CrossFit community, and and a lot of people do them very very differently. But how was that? negotiation and process for you was it painful was it messy like how did it how did it kind of go it was fairly easy it was a series of a few emails to tell the truth really uh, we had one phone conversation sent some emails with follow-up questions then i basically took the inventory list sent it to rogue and said what would it cost if i was going to buy this equipment new and get it shipped to Kauai?" and i made an offer based on what the equipment was worth did you go buy you went on. You presented your offer based on new equipment. I used that to inform my decision. I depreciated it. Got anyway. it. Okay. And then, just out of curiosity, do you mind at like? Mm-hmm. I know generally what re, what resale equipment would go for, mm-hmm. and it's generally not fifty percent of what new would be. Yeah. Um. I just sold a bunch of stuff from one of our other facilities, mm-hmm. and like there are there are things that that maintain value. Rowers. Bikes, yeah. probably 60 to 70% of their value. Everything else, like 50% immediately. Like the day that you purchase it, it's like a car. It is like, it's a bad investment if you're trying to resell it. Um, so so ba- now did you, was that basically how the purchase went down? Like you bought the, so there's a couple different scenarios. If a business is profitable, then I'm doing some sort of multiple of income. Or if it's not, generally what you're doing is you're essentially just buying their equipment and assuming a lease and memberships. Is that basically how you're That's what down? I did, yes. Yeah, which is... Unfortunately, probably the vast majority of purchases in the CrossFit community. Mm-hmm. And I say unfortunately because that just means that largely people are not running like super profitable businesses, yeah. which is kind of the point of this podcast that things are trying to change so that people can propel what I, the, the purpose of this podcast, and a lot of things that we do is to continue to push the community forward in coaching, in business. And there's a lot of people doing it in business, but then in our experience, and, we, and I'll let you speak about this a little bit is like the coaching community is largely what I get the sense is, is starved 
information wise. So, um, okay. So you still have your, your other facility and you're in uh, Kauai and then, so you're coaching the vast majority of, of classes at this point? Yeah, it's a light schedule. Uh, we have four classes a day plus two hours of open gym and I cover all but five hours per week. Okay. And if and anybody then, needs time off, then I cover those other five hours too. How many other coaches do you have? Three. Okay. So they don't coach a ton. Nope. Do they, is that part-time for them? They obviously do something else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's and a then, pag- passion for them that they coach. Got it. Do you have a plan to, I don't want to say remove yourself, but work out of that 80-hour <laughs> coach, you know, classes a month deal? I had a plan. It hasn't gone as planned. Okay. <laughs> I thought that I'd move to the island, get to know people, recruit some coaches that weren't coaching. Mm-hmm. I just figured in a, in a community like that, there'd be, there'd be talent available, and there hasn't been to date. So now the plan B is start to develop with, from within, which okay. is going to be a slower process, but probably yield an outcome that I'm going to be more comfortable with in the long run. I'll give you plan C. We're putting it out right now on the podcast. If you want to move to Hawaii and coach CrossFit, CrossFit Kapa'a is looking for a head coach. <laughs> so, um, which I, I think, obviously there's two scenarios. I can develop my coaches within or I can pull them from the outside. And I think that people are, and I get it, right? So it's, it's CrossFit in a lot of ways we think we're unique. However, we are not in, in many, many, many ways that people get real weird about bringing somebody from the outside in to kind of, I don't want to say take over and, and, and shepherd your, your herd, but kind of, yeah. right? Um, but there are some really good coaches that are from the outside that would like, that would do that. And we talked about this on, uh, I think it was the coach compensation podcast with Todd, that there, there, there is a scenario where you absolutely could do that. And so, they're like, there are absolutely great candidates to do that. So if you're interested, hit us up. We'll hand you off. <laughs> Bethany can do an interview with you and then, uh, and then she can get some of her time back. Um, what's been the biggest struggle from a, on the business side, because you are now 100% removed from your now 10 year affiliate. Mm -hmm. The biggest struggle is ensuring that my values are continued, even when I'm multiple thousands of miles away. Do you have a GM at the other spot? I do. I got incredibly lucky. This is really what's made the second gym a possibility for me. Uh, co-owner of a gym out of Miami, got married, his wife got a job in Utah, they moved up to Utah, he sold out of his other gym. Okay. Uh, that was... It's kind of a dream scenario. Oh, yeah. Uh, super experienced coach, great energy, super knowledgeable. Uh, so he coached for me for about six months, and then this opportunity presented itself to buy the second gym, so I went to him and said, would you be interested in it? Because if he hadn't been interested, I wouldn't have taken the next step. That's interesting. So you... I mean, that's kind of how it should work. So you had the GM in place before this came up. You, this wasn't, you didn't get a GM in a reactionary fashion to having this opportunity to come up. Yes, I did. Okay. Okay. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that's what you should, a lot of people, including myself, have done it backwards. So, um, and I regretted it afterwards. It was, that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay. And then how much, how much, inter- so I'm, I, this is a selfish question for me. How do you manage that GM from afar? What's the time difference there? Four hours? Depends on if it's daylight savings or not, but currently four hours, sometimes three hours. Okay. Okay. So what kind of, what is that communication like, right? So there are people that are considering opening another gym. Mm -hmm. Most of them are going to be co-located in the same region or city. 
um, how are you keeping tabs to ensure that your values still exist within the gym? Like, what does that management look like for you? It's a lot of communication via text and email, um, periodic phone calls, but we're both more typing kind of people than talking. Okay. Uh, so we touch base on a lot of things. And then when I am in town, we sit down, we spend a lot of time together. Uh, I spend every minute I can in the gym, getting the vibe, talking to the members, getting mm -hmm. feedback from everyone. Um, we've got cameras in the gym too. So I can turn spying. It's <laughs> good. Listen, I'm not above any of that. I, we've had a couple robberies uh, in oh, both okay. facilities. So that Got was it. the original reason that we installed them. But it, it's nice to be able to just turn it on and see, hey, you know, the gym actually got cleaned when it was supposed to get cleaned. Things look safe. Yep. Do you, do you guys have any set kind of battle rhythm with regard to meetings that you guys do? Like, do you check in with him on specific days for specific things? We started out that way, but now it's become more as needed. It, it okay. works out to be about every other week. Okay. As far as verbal communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I would assuming you have some form of communication almost daily. A couple times a week. Okay. He's good. Okay. He, he's really quite independent. That's great. Yeah. And then how much of the business does he manage? So, because this is always a question that comes up is like, well, do, does he, what, do they get to see all the finances? Like, how does all of that work? Like, people get real freaked out about that. I still have control of the finances. He's not working on that part. Okay. He's, uh, he's the member experience. He brings on new clients, um, chases down the leads. Coaches throughout the day, uh, manages coaching schedules, does all the programming. Um, yeah. And then the other question people would have is, um, and there's, I don't, I actually don't think there's a right or wrong. I just think it depends. For as far as compensation, it, when you brought him on, was that uh, did you guys agree upon a salary, or is he paid hourly or percentage based for programs and stuff like that? That's changed, actually, since we started, even since the first of the year. Initially, it was going to be on a per-class basis and then a flat amount for administrative tasks. And he wasn't terribly satisfied with that. Um, and we had some negotiating going on about five months into the process. And now he has a flat salary. And I'm, I'm proud to say we're paying him a living wage now. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that puts you in the, the very small minority as mm -hmm. far as CrossFit gyms that can do that. Um, how has the gym gone? Have you seen growth? Has it been steady? Like, are you pretty happy with it? We had a massive culture change last summer in that he pushed hard for putting members on contracts, which we had never done before. Okay. And philosophically, it was really hard to persuade me uh, that it was a value to the gym and to the members. But we've done that. There was a little bit of attrition when mm -hmm. we initially did that, but small. I'm, I'm talking like 5% maybe. So... Let's talk about that, right? So there's two, for anybody that hasn't had this conversation or doesn't understand, they're, we're just weird. CrossFit gym owners are weird. We're far too nice. That is a very much far more mental, um, uh, probably correct, philosophical wrestling match than it is just like to actually do it, right? So I'm genuinely curious, how did you switch your mindset how did you get to the point how were you wrestled over to the other side you're like all right let's do it i'm uh, i'm good 
we talked about it in terms of what it would allow us to do as an organization. Instead of just having CrossFit wads, we were able to broaden the schedule, um, introduce some open gyms, some specialty classes, um, like an OCR specialty class, a lower skill CrossFit. What's OCR? Uh, obstacle course racing. Got it. Lots of folks that are into the Tough Mudders, the Spartans. It was a prep program from them. Do you guys have, I mean, what uh, do you guys have a special equipment for that? We've had that. I've always been kind of into strongman stuff. Oh, we used cool. to do the summer of strongman, so I bought from an event a bunch of leftover sandbags, sleds, nice. tires, all those sorts of things. Okay. And then as far as like allowing you to do that, uh, I'm assuming that we're talking about I have, for the most part, guaranteed revenue. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. Okay. Um, what was your hesitation? Why didn't, why didn't you want to do it? Because I was of the old school thought, uh, you know, <coughs> if we're excellent, they'll stay. I'm going to be so good, nobody's going to want to leave. And, uh, yeah, that does, just doesn't play out in reality. <laughs> so talk about that a little bit, because, uh, like, myself included, we all take, we all think worst case scenario is that mm -hmm. the reality is if you look at all your members, like most, I mean, assuming you don't really suck, they're all going to be there for at least a year, right? So do you guys, let me, so this is the, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you guys have... Did you do any price changes when you put a contract, or did you just take everybody, move them over same price point, and put them on a put them we on a increase contract? Increase the price. Oh, That's not substantially, right. but ten dollars a month was the very lowest rate. Ten dollars more than what they had paying, been paying would be the lowest rate. Okay. And that was with a one-year commitment. So, did, what kind of pushback did you get from the members? Very little. I was shocked, and the questions that I did get were surprising. Um, like what? can you ensure that we'll retain the same staff that we'll have our coaches that we love? That's a legit question. But a great question. That uh, that was what they were concerned about was wonderful. That's almost like cheating, meaning that that's a super easy response in the sense that your response is because we're doing this, I can now guarantee that mm -hmm. with the exception of some crazy stuff happening. But you're like, absolutely, that's why we're doing it. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Bring it up. When we when we raised our prices a couple years ago, there was a handful of people that we did like a six month roll up because the price increase was going to be pretty substantial for them because they had been with us for eight years. Yeah. And when we were doing stupid stuff with regard to pricing before that, and um, nothing. I would tell anybody who's getting ready to go through some sort of contract conversion or price increase that. 5% would be a massive loss in membership. Meaning like 5% of your base leaves because you do this. Mm -hmm. That would be an incredible number. Like most of the time it's less than 1%. Yeah. And if you do the math, you, s you still come out net positive because you brought the price up and you lost mm -hmm. two people who reality is we're probably going to leave anyway because they're probably your number one gripers, complainers, or just people like that. So... Um, that's awesome. And then, so what, um, what kind of did that process look like? So talk to me about the communication of that, mm -hmm. because that's super important. It was a soft rollout initially. We started talking about it in classes frequently, and then there was an official notice about a month and a half before it was going to take place. And we kept talking about it and talking about it, sending emails saying, you need to pick your commitment level. And then we got down to the wire and there were still people not making the commitment. So we said, if you say nothing, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put you in the lowest rate possible. You'll get a one-year term unless you tell me otherwise. 
And then were there people that just did no communication? You just switched them over? Yes. Uh, luckily, the check-in system that we use, if they hadn't signed a contract yet, it would pop up with the contract and force them to sign it before they were able to check in for their next class. Okay. And then um, which, what uh, CRM do you use, your check-in system? And you can just move that away from Push press. Okay. Do you like it? Yeah. Okay. Um, I know quite a few people that use it. Um, do you use it? No, that's not. What else do you? Because you can't just use push press, right? Sugar wad. That's what I thought. You have to use them paired together. Yeah, they work okay. really nicely together. Okay. Okay. And then do you know what the number was that you lost in that conversion? If you don't, that's fine. I would guess it was about three people. and. Which is a joke. And sometimes you lose people just because you communicated with them. They haven't been in for a while. It's billing them every month. And the email that catches their attention is what that causes them to cancel finally. And I think that was more of the case. So this is going to sound really terrible. So I've had conversations with gym owners. And I don't, I don't know what your frequency of communication is with your member base. Like whether it's social media, email, in-person, text, phone call, whatever. Um, that are hesitant to do things like change prices, change merchant processors mm -hmm. because of fear that these people who are not showing up are going to quit when you have to reach out to them and tell them they have to change their payment information, right? And to me, I'm like, well, I feel like we've identified a problem <laughs> is that maybe you need to get these people in the gym. Mm -hmm. But what... Um, did you have any of that with regard to, I don't like w with what frequency do you con like, so I'm a big fan of like, we are not an out of sight, out of mind gem. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to get no less than two pieces of communication from me on a weekly basis. And if you want to unsubscribe them, that's completely up to you, but I'm not going to be like you're in and then you never hear from me again. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you guys do it? We do a lot of our communication through SugarWad. There's okay. an announcements feature there. So when they log in to look at the workout, that's when they're going to see a lot of the communication okay. for things that are not super formal. You know, Does SugarWad, do you know, do they push notifications to the clients? Meaning, like, will they get a notification on their phone? Or do they have to, is that like a passive where they have to go in and actually look at it? It's a push, but you can turn it off. Okay. Personally, I would like to see far more push notifications within some of those CRMs. Mm -hmm. Because I think that with the ability, with people that have the ability to turn it off. Yeah. Another one that's super annoying for me, and like, Wattify, if you're listening, which I don't know if you mm -hmm. are, but... Having people have to automatically opt in to SMS or text function within Wattify mm -hmm. is incredibly annoying. It should be the other way around. Like, they've opted in for my service. They've said I can communicate with them. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous that I have to, like, track people down and be like, hey, can you opt in for text messaging so that when the gym's closed, you get the text message that I sent out about that? So... Yeah. Anyway, uh, sorry, that was my tangent <laughs> and just complete annoyance with Wattify in some sense. But um, okay, so then, what is what's your timeline, or do you have a timeline as far as like, so you're coaching how many classes a month right now, roughly? Eighty-ish. So for those of you that don't coach a lot, that is a shitload of classes. Yes. It's a lot. I've done. I did about a six-month period where I did no less than eighty, but probably averaged north of a hundred a couple years ago after I let one of my head coaches go. And that is brutal. And I don't mean brutal in the sense that, like, I don't like to coach. I mean brutal in the sense that that is emotionally exhausting, right? Teaching a class is a performance. 
you lay it all out there, you give them everything you've got, and then you have to go and re-energize somehow. Particularly if you're doing them back to back. Now you guys have a little bit, I don't want to say like a, a leaner schedule, but you said you have four classes a day and then two hours of open gym. That's you correct. have a six hour. So what do those class times look like? 6 a.m., open gym from 7 to 9, 9 a.m., 4.45 and 6 p.m. So you got a decent gap in the middle of the day then. Yes. If you opened up class times in there, would you get would you get more? I don't think so. Just because uh, of population. Yeah, local members are working, and tourists are. Touristing. Drinking. Yeah, drinks with little umbrellas in them. <laughs> okay. So on that note, as far as eighty, how long have you been maintaining that workload? Since the first of the year. Okay. With a couple, I, I've had some guest coaches come out. Yep. Um, some good friends have come out for three or four weeks and run the gym so I could go back to Utah and check in there. So let's talk about that. How do you do that? Uh, we're lucky that the facility has a studio apartment attached to it, so it's the best commute ever. Um, and I've tried to set it up basically like a, an Airbnb for coaches. So it's fully stocked, it's clean, it's ready for them to use, and they can come and stay, teach the classes, go have fun during the day, and then they keep the place running for me. What is your vetting process? So I know somebody's listening to this and be like, yeah. I will literally pack <laughs> my shit and go to Hawaii. To date, it has only been people I know really well. Okay. Um, for example, a coach that worked for me for five years before moving across the country. Um, people who've coached for me at my gym in Utah. And then the most recent was friends of another gym owner. Um, people who had guest coached for him. Got it. Would you be open to having, like obviously you have to vet them and make sure they're not complete turds, but if you were going to vet them, what would it look like? trying to help you out here, Bethany. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's going on my to-do list, a proper vetting procedure, uh, okay. because it's been personal relationships thus far. Okay. So this is something, and I don't, I don't know when we're going to release this podcast, but I did one with the barbell jobs guy. Mm. And a lot of what we talked about is like coaches, the vast majority don't have an actual resume, meaning mm -hmm. the resume consists of I like CrossFit, which is not an actual fucking resume. Like that is still a thing. <laughs> it is still a thing. And that would be the first piece of the vetting process, which is like, I have a resume. I've been working at this gym. These are my professional credentials. These are my references, at which point you can, you can start that process without even having to talk to them and, and then reach out to some people and figure that out. But would you be open to having some people come out there? Absolutely. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure. So what's the longest you've had somebody guest coach for you? One month. That's a long time. Yeah. And then what do they have to cover? Basically just travel to get out there? Yes. And then is there, I'm assuming there's compensation involved with that? Uh, there hasn't so far because it's, it's been my friends. Got it. Okay. But they have they were driving my car. They're staying in my house. They basically get a surfboard. free vacation. Yeah. yeah, they get a month-long vacation in Hawaii. I feel like I'm not a huge barter or trade person, mm -hmm. but I feel like that would be a fair trade. Right. I hope so. And our community is something special out there. You know, even here, uh, I ran into a pair of friends at the 10-year affiliate gathering who had been out at my gym for about 10 days. And they were there in February, and they're asking by name, how's so-and-so doing? What about her? What about him? And not just what they're doing in the gym, but their lives. Like, they got to know some special people there. That's really cool. And then how big is your community in Hawaii, like as far as your CrossFit community? Uh, 40 members. Okay. So it's nice and tight then. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's great. Do you, what's, the, what's the max... What's the max kind of capacity you feel like you could have there? Like, could you grow to two or 300 people or no? Not enough people. 
if we added more classes throughout the day, if they were spread out at different times, certainly we could do that. And we have had classes with 15 people in our 700 square foot gym. That's a trick. Yeah, that is a tight. So talk to me about your space, right? So that's, a, that's always another one. So 700 square feet. So for those of you who are not big on square footage, it's not big. No. It's considerably smaller than most CrossFit gyms. I'm trying to think of what 700 square feet would be. Well, there is no video version of this, so it doesn't <laughs> matter. But it's a not big. Um, what does that look like? So what challenges do you have from a coaching standpoint? So mm -hmm. let's dive into coaching here for a second. What, I what are your biggest challenges with, with regard to space and logistics mm -hmm. that you have to navigate in your gym specifically? I have to program to the space without a doubt. Um, you know, double unders <laughs> are definitely a trick for us to program because that takes up a good amount of space. If there are barbells on the floor, it just doesn't happen. Got it. Uh, even box jumps, that gets to be a little bit tricky. So uh, last week, we had a workout with biking, rowing, double unders. And I picked Thursday because that's typically our slowest day of the week. A lot of times I'll have two or three people per class. 6 a.m., I've got eight. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so what are some of the things that you've done with regard to the programming that have helped you mitigate that? So for, and I asked this question because there's a lot of, this came up recently. I think it was at a level, yeah, it was at a level two I did in Kansas City. And somebody was like, well, what if I have this? Mm -hmm. And if you've not been coaching a long time and you've not had to be really efficient with your space and your timeline, like you're not forced to be creative in these scenarios. So what are some of the creative things that you've learned to do with regard to that in order to facilitate a 15-person class okay. in a 700-square-foot facility? Uh, dumbbells take up a lot less space than barbells. That's the first thing to look at. Uh, sending them outside to run instead of using a bike or a rowing machine. Sometimes we do have to go to a partner workout or an alternating EMOM or something along those lines. All very simple, none of which really change the stimulus of the workout. Mm -hmm. That's like the first thing that I hear when you tell me that. And I don't know why more people don't do that. Probably myself included. So like we tend to not make that quick distinction of, okay, a barbell takes up, we'll call it, roughly so it's seven you gotta go two or three back yeah roughly 20 square feet right for a barbell mm -hmm. right not a dumbbell a dumbbell takes up about eight square feet because i just need enough room to stand and hold on to two dumbbells but i can still for, for the most part mm -hmm. right if it's a met count i can still get roughly the same loading Right, so if it's 135 yeah. pound, you might go 55 to 60 pound dumbbells, and even 60 would be a pretty aggressive, because that's not a one-to-one -one transfer, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, meaning, for those of you that don't know what I mean, is that let's use uh, like Fran. So if you've if you've done Fran with a barbell, it's 95 pounds, and most people would just go, well, okay, well I'll just do um, like 50 pound dumbbells and go to 100. That is not the same. Like it is significantly more difficult to do Fran, even though it's only five additional pounds with two dumbbells than it is to do it with a 95 pound barbell. So it is generally a lower weight by something to the tune of about 10 to 15%. Um, anyway, um, so you can swap out dumbbells and significantly reduce the space required to do the same workout mm -hmm. and kind of make it harder. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so anything else besides those, besides those ideas? Yeah, I've, I've gotten good at the programming and picking which days to bring things in. Um, literally to date, so I've been there since January 1st, there was one day in one class where double-unders were included, and I had to say, I'm sorry, we just can't jump. There are 12 of you in the room. 
do, uh, do you generally have a backup plan with regard to that? Meaning like if I was going to make this a partner workout, this is what I would do immediately. Yes, I generally do have a backup plan. And I also have maybe tertiary plans for if this person is there and that person is there because my regulars need particular modifications. I, I put the bikes in the lobby some days. So how big is your lobby? Ooh, I have not measured that. I would guess eh, 250, 300 square feet. But that's not included in your... So you have a 700 square foot of working space. Yes, Got I'm talking it. about okay. working space. Got it. Okay. I was going to say, if you just chopped off another... I was like, okay, that changes things significantly if we now have 500 square feet. All right. And then do you... Is that retail space or, or like... Okay. Yeah, check-in retail. Um, there's a cute little tiki hut for the kids to play in. That's cool. Yeah. And then where your space is located, what kind of um, property is that? Is that retail? Is it warehouse or, or what is it? <laughs> it's retail. Okay. Uh, we share the building with uh, Kauai Nuts, so the best smelling neighbors ever. They roast these delicious smelling nuts. And then adult novelty store right next door to us called Hush. <laughs> nuts and adult novelty. I like it. We all specialize in creating salty nuts. There you go. <laughs> that's your tagline. I really hope that's on your website. Um, <laughs> what kind of nuts do they roast there? Uh, Everything? Wide variety. Yeah. Macadamia, almonds, uh, I don't even know. Honestly, I don't shop there because I'm afraid if I start eating, I'll never stop. That's a good point. Like Brazil nuts are like that. Like yeah. Brazil, nut and Brazil nuts and macadamia nuts, you just eat them all day long. And a macadamia nut, for those of you zone nerds, is one block of fat. So, um, yeah, another tidbit of useless information rattling around in my brain. Do you do the programming? I did up until two months ago, and I finally broke down and started to use CompTrain. Their class version, though, right? Or yes. is it? Okay. Yeah, they're classic. So how do you like it? It's good stuff. Um, and for the price, I cannot write my own programming in quality coaches' notes for what they're charging. Uh, is there a coach's notes? Is that a lesson plan or is it just like stimulus notes and stuff like that? No, it's very detailed okay. lesson plan. Yeah. I've never used it. That's why I ask. I mean, uh, it, I know within Sugar, well, the feature is called coaches notes where they Got started. It. Okay. And then, so let me ask you this. Do you, how closely do you and your coaches follow the coaches' notes? Uh, I would say I adhere to it perhaps 80%. Um, what causes you to deviate in that 20%? Is it space or just time? Honestly, it's my experience as a coach. Uh, I have particular ways of teaching things that I like. Uh, I may use theirs once or twice and then decide I like my way better or just to add a little variety to it. I like it. We we used um, warm up and workout for probably a little over a year, uh, and that's because I trust and know Pat Barber, and I mm -hmm. am very confident in the product that they produce. But we regularly de regularly deviated. Mm -hmm. But I learned a lot by using their stuff because he would program things that I would probably never program because I just didn't like it or didn't want to do it. Um, but I tell you what, I did not do in that time frame is I did not change the programming at all, unless it was just a literally a piece of equipment we didn't have for whatever reason. But I force myself to not play with it, and I think we run a better gym, and I have better knowledge of programming because of that. Because generally, we're all biased, and if I'll change it not because it's not a good workout or it won't give me a good stimulus or it won't make my athletes fitter. It's purely a bias on my end where I just don't want to do that for whatever reason. And by doing that, you fail to learn 
things about those two particular movements or those combinations and what that stimulus actually looks and feels like. Um, so, yeah, I think it's super important to, if you're, go A, you're paying for it, mm -hmm. so you might as well just use it. Um, but B, you're going to learn something, even if it's something bad that you don't agree with. Mm -hmm. um, it, speaking of timelines, I was looking at, all right, so we'll do a little coaching exercise here. Somebody sent me the other day a DM that was a program that was written by a source. We will leave said source unnamed. And it was a ridiculous amount of volume, meaning there was an imam strength on the front end. There was skill work. There was for sure a Metcon, and there was something else in there. But I do remember this. There were seven unique movements in said workout, at least four of which were complex, meaning like muscle up, snatch, clean, and jerk. Right. And this is a one hour class. Well, <laughs> so it gets better. Um, and in this, it was touted as like, this is built for a 60 minute class. At which point I'm like, I need to see that unfold. Like I need to, I need to, I need you to mic up, put a camera on yourself and show the world how this is done because I'm having a hard time envisioning this. Not to say that I'm the world's greatest coach, but that is an incredible amount of work to get done in 60 minutes, right? And this kind of goes to the program. And the reason I asked about the, the, the lesson plans and the workout is because I, I do want to make something very clear. And, and Jay would agree with me. I, I can speak for him on this because we've talked about it. We are not against doing all of those things, right? I am against doing it in a 60-minute window, right? So what people fail to forget is this. So they see so-and-so, any, so you were a prior competitive athlete, right? So you've probably had no shortage of days with significant volume in them, correct? 12-part workouts that take three hours, yeah. Correct. Now, so here is the disconnect. When you are training for that, how long and, in and how many times throughout the day would it take you to get that training in? So talk to me about a typical training day, and then I'm going to shed a light on why this is inefficient at best and really stupid at worst. Well, and I was a low-volume competitive athlete. Mm -hmm. I trained just once, to d once a day, but there were times during the season that it would take three hours. Okay. And because of some injury history, a warm-up for me can't be less than 20 minutes if I'm really going to move well. Yeah, you're definitely not old. However, you're like me, and you're not a spring chicken. Like, it takes me a little while to, like, sometimes touch my toes because I'm just old and crotchety <laughs> on days, right? I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. You know what I mean? So in a, so a three-hour period when you were competing at this point, what would that three hours consist of? Probably starting with some skill work. Uh, could be five different items related to portions of the ring muscle-up. Um, then there'd be a strength component, probably another strength component, and then a Metcon of some sort. Cool. So if you put that in three hours, it doesn't sound so weird, to be very honest with you. And if people want to do that, then by all means. The issue becomes when I'm jamming all of that into 60 minutes, right? <clears throat> and this question regularly comes up at the level two, is we start to draw that timeline out. And then eventually somebody raises their hand and they say, I go to gym XYZ. We have to do this, this, and this in a one-hour time period. What do you suggest that I do? To which point my response is only, first thing you need to do is 
write a lesson plan so that you can do the best you can do with what you have. The second thing I would do is potentially have a conversation with whoever writes the programming, if that is, in fact, not you. But what we'll do in that exercise is, like, tell me on this 60-minute timeline where you're going to teach people how to move better. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we could cut out the general warm-up. And I'm like, does that sound like a good idea? And they're like, not really. Okay, what else can we cut out? Well, we can cut out the wad brief and the cool down. I said, does that sound like a good idea? To which they reply, no. And and it, now at that point, people are starting to have this aha moment about like, it, it's not about doing these workouts is bad. Like people are missing the point of what we're trying to say. The point that we're making is like, it's fundamentally impossible to coach, meaning like teach C correct in a 60 minute time frame when you're doing that in a 60 minute time period. Most games athletes, they do all of that volume, but they'll have a one hour session in the morning. We'll have a two hour session in the middle of the day and they'll do another training session in the evening. Mm-hmm. And then people are coming in trying to jam that into 60 minutes while not dedicating all of the other recovery time involved with that. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's a bad idea. It's not a bad idea at its core. It's like bad idea the way you're facilitating it. It's just not intelligent to do it that way. It's like way too much in one hour, no recovery at volumes that you can't sustain. Mm-hmm. So. And as um, a coach, I feel like the better coach I've become, the less I want to do that. When I was a crappy brand new coach, it sounded like a great idea. Keep them busy so I don't have to teach them anything. And now that I actually know things and want to help people, I want the time to do that. Which, perfect segue. What At what point did you make that shift from, because I think everybody, not everybody, a lot of people at some point either kind of come to that realization or they don't. They say, I'm not paying my bills being fit, Right. So I need to be a better coach. At what point did you start to have that conversation with yourself to be like, my time is probably best allocated being a better coach? I think when I attended, at the time it was called Coaches Prep, mm-hmm. what's now the L2, uh, that helped me a lot to make that decision. And that was, I believe, 2014-ish okay. when I took that. Where'd you take it? Uh, CrossFit Strong in outside of Dallas. Oh, at a gigantic uh, facility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did, have you met Gail Yoakum? I have not. He was here this weekend. Oh. So he owns CrossFit Strong, and he's actually moving into a larger facility. What? Yeah, yeah, it's bonkers. <laughs> now they're doing some other stuff. So they're doing some of that OCR stuff that you guys are doing okay. as well. But, yeah, he's a super good dude um, in Dallas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who, who were your instructors? Oh, gosh, it's been so long. Do you remember? Probably I don't. Better I don't name them. They made me cry. It was harsh back then. It w- Yeah. The delivery was not as polished as it is today. <laughs> Um, okay. And then, so when you left there, what did you walk away from or what did you walk away with? More than anything, how to be better at programming. Uh, Really? Yeah. I I built a spreadsheet that I used for five years after that, that analyzed every week's workouts, um, you know, time domain, monostructural gymnastics, weightlifting, uh, number of skills involved. Mm -hmm. And I, I looked at that every week that I wrote programming. So if, for those of you who had not taken the level two, it's changed a little bit, but the, the premise is the same. It, it's basically an evaluation seat where you have like a whole list of movements, uh, stimulus, time domain, um, vo- rep count, uh, all this stuff on there. And what you do is you basically just put little tick marks for each workout. It checks like this is a five to ten minute workout with weightlifting and gymnastics. The movements are, you know, pull-ups and thrusters and... Um, what else is in there? Low volume 
um, stuff like that. And then what it does is it starts to give you this pattern to basically illustrate whether you are developing some sort of bias in your programming. Um, is that basically the same one that you used? Yes. And then when you use that, did you also use that to try to start programming forward or are you just using it as an analysis tool? I used it programming forward, definitely, mm -hmm. that we were due for you know, this time domain or this set of skills, something along those lines. Um, as far as addressing biases, um, that's a big part of the reason that I went with Comtrain to force me out of my comfort zone to make me which stop. Is, which is legit. Yeah. Um, I don't. I've heard him talk about this, and I and I actually agree with it. I don't know if they abide by it anymore, but um, I'm a huge fan of. I do believe that there is one day a week that um, nobody should touch a bar. There should be no weightlifting. It should be mm -hmm. completely gymnastics, monostructural, or all of either of those. Is that still in play there for what they do? Definitely. Okay. I, I think it's just a very simple way to manage intensity and and give people's CNS a break, right? And that, mm -hmm. and I think we talked about this recently on another podcast, but talking about like that is a very yeah. Todd and I talked about it, I believe, and that's just a very simple way to get people off of the intensity train, right? And just be like, listen, you can, you cannot go full ham on a five mile run. Maybe you can if that's your jam, but probably not going to, mm -hmm. you know. So that's cool. I'm glad they still do that because I do believe that is a very, very effective way to, A, allow more time to teach them skills, right, but also just give people a break, mm -hmm. right, from beating themselves day in and day out. Yeah, that's that's a big thing I took away from working with Nick Fowler, uh, central, nervous central nervous system fatigue. And for, you know, the first five years of my CrossFit career, I just 100% every day. <laughs> and then your body starts to protect itself. It starts to reduce what your maximum 100% output is. And it took a lot of years to get that back. And that's an interesting topic, which I don't, I usually don't go down that road because it's a, it's, it's a bit outside of the scope of the courses that we teach mm -hmm. in CrossFit, right? So it's, it's a, but it is a real thing, meaning that most, what most people are ignoring is that if I am doing heavy lifts every single day, that are not intelligently programmed, meaning like there's some sort of undulation within that programming. There's waves in my training with regard to volume and loading. Um, at some point, it becomes detrimental to the adaptation that we are trying to chase, meaning like you're going to go backwards, right? And then, so you started to see that then? Definitely. Before you started working with Nick? Yes. How long do you think it took you to realize that? I don't know that I realized it. He told me that. Um, he was like, hey, knucklehead. <laughs> the reason that I went to start working with him um, is actually that I had back surgery in 2014. Uh, herniated L4, L5. How, do you know how you did it? I was drunk and playing golf. Listen, CrossFit is not dangerous, everybody. <laughs> it is golf and drinking. It made um, me strong enough to hurt myself with a golf club. That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> Which brings up, do you do you guys do you guys put in a lot of rotational work in your programming at all? No. That that is something that that people miss right within CrossFit, and and that I don't know that it's a legitimate criticism because people don't who criticize it don't really understand it, but they they the criticism is there's no rotational work in CrossFit, and it's like yeah we reserve that for sport specific training right. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't play a sport, the way you get that is in good warm-ups or maybe putting in some accessory work in there in order to get that rotational. But in instances like yours, if you are not working rotational strength, you can develop capacity in this frontal plane movement 
that could be adverse when I go into some sort of transverse or rotational mm-hmm. movement to put me in a bad position. Yeah. Right. So when you, how long did that recovery take? Oh, there were some bad complications. Um, there was about a month where I was thinking my new goal in life was walking unassisted. Um, so that took took two months to get through that portion, and then another six months after that. So about eight months after surgery, until I got to the point where I was like, "Hey, I might be able to be an athlete again." We're, what kind of loading are you doing at the eight month mark? Like, I started with no more than fifty percent of what RX was for the workout of the day, or fifty percent of what my old maximum was as a very upper end, just to give me some hard stuff. That's top end. Top end. Got it. Okay. I was going to say that sounds a little heavy. Um, how much physical therapy did you have? A lot. What did you learn from that? I didn't go to the right physical therapist. <laughs> That's fair. So then the question still stands, what did you learn? What did you learn about rehab, prehab stuff that you didn't know prior to? Mm-hmm. Body position embracing. That's that's what I needed to learn. Mm-hmm. Are there any things that you picked up that you now use in coaching that you learned from that experience as far as like either a prepping your athletes or coaching them real time? Definitely uh, teaching new clients how to brace definitely came out of that experience. Any gems that you've got over the years that you you find to be uber effective? (sighs) No, I'm, I don't know that I have the right words for it yet. We're still trying different things. Okay. Maybe we can come up with some words right now. Yes. What, so what would if you were to teach me and I'm a new client, what would you t- what would you tell me to do? Uh, we start laying on the floor, knees bent, low okay. back pressed against the ground, and yep. trying to teach them how to make contact with, with their the lower back. Yes, got it. Okay, so trying to get them to create some sort of abdominal pressure, like mm-hmm. teaching them how to use their diaphragm. Yeah, okay. then um, some dead bugs, some bird dogs, things. Dude, like that. some of the most underutilized warm ups ever. Yeah. Dead bugs are hard as shit. Oh yeah, and if you um. The bird dog, if you put a PVC pipe across the base of the back yep. and you have to balance that and not drop it off, that increases it, the control. It's kind of a little bit of a spinoff of uh, some stuff you do in the FMS, the function movement screen. Okay. Um, I did um, Active Life's group class programming for about a year. I used that in my Utah gym a couple of years ago. We he was on the podcast. Yeah, we did. Twice. Nice. Yeah, I think twice. Yeah. Um, what did you get from that? Because Sean's a sharp mm-hmm. dude. Um, actually, you're asking about the rotational stuff. Mm-hmm. That's where we definitely got the rotational work in our accessory work. So what rotational stuff do you really like to put in the classes? And then second yeah. question is, do you program that into a workout, or are you putting that stuff in, like, warm-ups and cool-downs? I don't put it into a workout. I want to be really controlled, properly executed, not mm-hmm. for time. Um, when I was doing it, it was a dedicated 5- to 10-minute cool-down every day. And initially, people were on board. They were excited about it. And then there was some burnout. And probably by eight months in, people just not want to do it. They were sneaking out the back door to get away from it. Yeah, they, that stuff is hard to get people to do. It, it's like, particularly if you're going to make it mandatory, like there's some ways you can make it fun. But even then, it's kind of loses its steam. We write the accessory work, and the rule is like, do some of it, do all of it, do none of it. We don't care. It's there for you. Mm-hmm. When we have time, we'll throw it in and do it as a group. And we'll play some games, do some stuff like that. Um, I'm a big fan of like just just good old-fashioned Russian twists just mm-hmm. because people can do it from a seated position. They can do it loaded. They can do it unloaded. They can do it with their feet on the floor. They can do it without their feet on the floor. Uh, but I find it to be really, really beneficial. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, it's basically like sitting on the floor in 
kind of like a, a modified V-up is how I would explain it, but with your knees bent, mm -hmm. but you're in the up position. And then basically you would either touch your hands on either side or like use a med ball or something like that. Really good partner warm-up that you can mm -hmm. use for people that I love to do, right? Particularly when I have new people in the class, you just be like, hey, you're going to do a Russian twist, throw to your partner, and then do that. So. And then there's the game where you pass the plates down the line. Yeah, That yeah, turns yeah. into a good one. Yep. And you can, if you want to really spice that up, you as a coach can change direction whenever you want, have people just Ooh. go back and forth. Yeah, there, I mean, there's so, so many things. And again, it's like you're only limited to your creativity with regard to that stuff. But I, I do believe rotational should be in there. However, it, it's hard to – I don't know that it – if you were to be like, hey, programming has, has, has the bulk of the meal, which is like the protein, the accessory work and all the rotational stuff is like the vegetables. It's, it's not the primary focus, right? Like I need protein, right? And then I'm going to – add vegetables to that to get what I need on top of it. Um, That's cool. exactly how I described it. It was, I can't make people eat their vegetables sometimes. Yeah, which, by the way, is okay and, and probably the norm, right? But as long as you're getting them to eat vegetables and understand the value of vegetables, that is a win, mm -hmm. right? That's where it's beneficial from a coaching standpoint. And that's when people come into you and they say, hey, I just don't have a muscle up. And be like, are you doing the accessory work? And they're like, no. And my first response is, do that. You, For the most part, you don't need special programming right mm -hmm. now. You need to do the accessory work. Like We built it in so that you can get the things that you want. Um, I do believe there are people that at some point need individualized programming, or they just want it, at which point give it to them. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority are just straight-up GPP people, don't need something super, super fancy. Um, I want to talk to you about the last thing is is just kind of like – the mentoring piece and as like you you had mentioned before we kind of hit record here that you've kind of felt I don't want to say alone but like on literally on an island yeah. with regard to coaching and then some of the stuff that you've found beneficial as far as the the weekly phone calls that we've been mm -hmm. doing and then either things that we do well or the things that we do poorly quite frankly so okay uh the mentoring program has been really helpful for me um Kauai, as part of the Hawaiian Islands, is literally the most remote chain of islands in the entire world if measured as distance from a continent. So we're way out there. Um, and I'm largely by myself. I don't have many other coaches around the gym. Um, so having the mentor group to bounce ideas off of and say, hey, am I crazy if I'm having this experience? Or what has your experience been? How did you deal with this? Uh, gives me a sense of connection, without a doubt. Um, has made me passionate again. That's cool. You know, I'm almost 10 years in, and... I want to read the journal. I want to write progressions. I want to video myself again. I want to be better. One of the things that I learned a long time ago is that generally when, if I get stuck, it's because I just need somebody to A, shed some light on something different or give me a challenge that I was not aware existed, mm -hmm. you know, or just shed some light on something like that. And once you do that, it's not hard to find the passion again. Like you just suddenly get in this little rut where you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm, this is good enough. And, and then somebody challenges you or throws you something that really pushes the limits of your skill set. And all of a sudden, we already know how CrossFitters are. We're competitive. And suddenly I want to get back in it again. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I get a little, is that kind of what is going on there? Certainly. I mean, I'm, I'm trying new techniques and skills. A couple of weeks ago, I used just simply the ready-go cue in a class and it went so well and like I know it sounds stupid and so basic and it simple does. but it sounds so dumb but controlling the movement and being able to see people and having them moving in unison it, it worked so well and people liked it 
even, so, even so, adults like being told what to do. For sure. So for those people who don't understand what you're talking about, mm-hmm. get like elaborate on that a little bit because somebody who's like yeah. somebody heard that and they're like, I don't know what you mean. So rather than just saying let's do I don't know. Say we're doing the push press. I'm holding them in position, telling them to be ready. And now, okay, now we drive um, or whatever it might be, telling them to get re- I'm going to say ready and then I'll say go and letting them know what to expect, when to expect it, getting them all moving at the same time instead of they're looking like a little bunch of bobbing dolls moving up and down randomly. So, and this, again, it sounds ridiculous when you say it, right? And Or when, I, or when anybody says it is that changing the command to give it the command is something that is like a preface to the command, which is, and what Bethany's saying is, and I see this all the time in a level two. So you set everybody up and you get them in their static position, whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden you just say, go. A, there was no heads up that there was a command coming. Mm-hmm. And here, and generally you know that this is ineffective is because people don't move in unison. Meaning like I have people go at different times and it looks like the wave going around or somebody just does something completely different than what we're supposed mm-hmm. to be doing. When you're giving commands in order to, Basically, just give people a heads up is you just say ready mm-hmm. in front of it. It's kind of like in a race. What if they were just like, everybody line up and just went go. They don't do that. They say ready, set, go. Mm-hmm. And, that, and now everybody's comes off the line at the exact same time. It's the same thing at the games, right? So they have 30 seconds, mm-hmm. 10 seconds, stand by. Everybody knows that standby is at three seconds, basically. The horn goes, and then they all take off at the same time. And it's no different when you're teaching your athletes how to move. Like, they need a preface or some sort of precursor to that command that's coming so that they can essentially, like, get their mind right. They're like, okay, here we go. It's coming. Mm -hmm. And then they go. Um, That's really cool that it worked out for you. Yeah. And it is the nuances, right? Like, those, like, little tiny things, like, make a big difference. Without a doubt. What else? (sighs) I'm trying new things again, and sometimes they don't work. Oh, last week I got a PVC pipe involved in queuing somebody on a deadlift, and it was a fucking disaster. But I think as a result of the conversations I've been having within the mentor group, I'm like, okay, so I tried something. It didn't work. She didn't get hurt. She doesn't know the difference. She's brand new. <laughs> so we go always, back and try something that's again. That's always my question. So you clearly knew it was a disaster. Did she know it was a disaster? No, if anything, she thought, oh, I failed. I didn't do it the right way. And it was totally me. <laughs> right. It was totally me. And that's, it's, 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 and again, a lot of that is just insecurity. Like we're just, there's a lack of confidence when we're trying something new. And it's funny. That's what I tell all the new coaches. Just try it. Nobody knows if it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Like you cannot predict the future. And here's what happens if it doesn't work. Nothing. So you just try it a different way when you go mm-hmm. through. But that trying new things and trying those cues is, A, how you start to kind of, like, shave off all the ineffective things and really kind of get down to the meat and potatoes of, like, what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you might end up with a cue that wasn't originally what you set out to have, but you kind of, like, fumbled your way through it. And like, oh, I accidentally came up with this one day by screwing it up four times prior to that. Exactly. So that's really cool. What else? Anything else? Have you started like reading and getting back into like the, the, the not sexy stuff, like the actual literature and like points of performance and faults and stuff like that? Definitely. Um, <laughs> as was demonstrated in one of our recent conference calls, I didn't even know where to find the faults in the manual. 
Well, that wasn't your fault. You're looking at the wrong version. <laughs> You're looking at the wrong version. Uh, but yeah, I'm definitely going back to them and it's helping me prepare for my classes better. Um, I started to challenge myself to look at the day's workout and write some of the points of performance the day before. So I had that readily accessible in my memory. Do you feel more efficient in your classes when you do that? And what do you spend on that beforehand? Like how much time? I'm probably spending 15 minutes prepping for the next day. And that does include taking like the warm up and making a slide for it in Sugar Wad. That's not a ton of time. Not at all. But how much more efficient does it make your classes? Exponentially. That's really cool. Especially 6 a.m. when I'm half asleep. And that's usually the worst class of the day as far as my presentation. Yes. That for, and it's also my biggest class of the day. So that is an interesting conversation because I don't think people look at the, or maybe they don't even really realize the, the, the lack of customer service involved with like doing 50 minutes of prep for the 6am class. Mm -hmm. You know, they're already tired. They want the same result, the same product as everybody else. And if you're using your 6am, like I did for years, as a guinea pig on like what the rest of your good classes and air quotes are going to look like for the rest of the day that is super shitty mm -hmm. and i did that for a long time i was like i'll figure it out in the 6 a.m and that is just horrible mm -hmm. so but i did want to ask you because you brought it up the from the mentoring group so the reason bethany was looking for the faults was i believe the homework was practicing demonstrating visual faults is that correct? Demonstrate faults from one of the nine foundational movements. Got it. Okay. And then you chose the Sumidov type pole, correct? I did. And then talk to me a little bit about that. Like, what were, was there anything that you learned from just going through that process? It was very difficult to demonstrate some of the faults, <laughs> to get my body into the position that was proper. Um, what I probably took away was actually the exercise before that in the homework where we were to demonstrate all nine of the foundational movements and video ourselves doing 10 reps, I am super hyperextended in my pressing finish positions and I had no idea. That it, but that's great. Now yeah. you know that. And that is, there are two things that we regularly tell people in a level one, more the level two, which is one, know your own movement. You need to know everything that is wrong with your movement. And it, it has, you moving perfectly does not make you a good or bad coach. It just means you're probably like everybody else and have movement faults. However, we need to know that from a coaching standpoint because when we demonstrate movement, if it is not your best variation or you do have significant deviation from points of performance, you should be calling yourself out. Otherwise, you just told everybody that that's okay. Mm -hmm. the, other the other thing that we will bring up is an inaccurate visual display of what the athlete is doing, mm -hmm. right? Because we either A, have not practiced or B, B, don't actually understand the fault of the movement. And that is a super regular or common occurrence when we see coaches coaching other athletes. And, and what I'm referring to is somebody gives, they say, hey, you're, um, we'll use the muted hip, for instance. They will either say that somebody is doing a muted hip when they're in fact doing an, an forward inclination of the chest or... The, or vice versa, or not show an accurate description of that. They'll, they'll say one and show the other, or just not enough deviation, all of which are the result of that is it is not clear to the athlete what should be happening, mm -hmm. right? And I think the practicing of the faults, A, helps you get, have more cues, right? Yeah. But then it also helps you understand the movements better, right? Yeah. 
and it's a it, it's it is a seldom practice and that is a skill like as you just illustrated like you have to you have to spend some time practicing that stuff yeah. have you used any of it yet definitely um and as of late uh the local really fantastic mexican restaurant has started bringing their employees in they don't speak hardly any english and i have like high school or traveler's Spanish. I know some body parts and some numbers. So the visual cues are even more important because they, they're replicating what I do. Uh, so it's, it's been timely. That's very cool. Yeah, if you, that's a, like the fastest way to get good at visual cues is like teach somebody a movement who does not speak the same language as you. You have to be real good on your visual cues. Um, very cool. Well, we were here in Whistler and I don't want to steal any more of your time because I know you guys are going to walk to the waterfall. So um, thank you for your time. This is really, really fun. And um, if you guys are headed out to Hawaii, hit Bethany up. Go to her gym. If you want to move to Hawaii and coach for a little <laughs> bit, hit us up. We'll hand you off. We'll vet you first, and then we'll we'll be Bethany's filter, and uh, and maybe you can get a, a paid vacation for a month out there and coach a little fitness to the uh, the community out there. On Mentor the group and staffing agency. The empire grows. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I've just created <laughs> two new streams of revenue of which Jay will be in charge of. So I'm not tasking myself with that. So uh, very cool. Safe travels, and it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yep. Thanks again for listening to Best Hour of Their Day. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, one more time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and send us any feedback you have to at Best Hour of Their Day on Instagram and Best Hour of Their Day at gmail.com if you want to shoot us an email. We appreciate you. Thanks again. Have a great rest of your day.